Hi, this is Frank in Post. I just want to note that the later portions of this episode do deal with representations of sexual assault and of murder, at times in a bit of graphic detail. Mookie, when he went over to Tina's place, he was talking with the grandma about Hector, his son, and said, no, no Spanish. It's bad enough his name is Hector. Like, okay, but you're also not raising him, dude. (laughs) Yeah. Thank God for kneecaps. (laughs) I wanted to say something about, thank God for the left breast. Thank God for the right (laughs) breast. But I'm like, no, that's too much. Thank God for the right breast. I thought it was nipple. Yeah. When I was blasting through the IMDb trivia, you heard me be like, oh, shit, Jesus Christ. I'll pull it up right now. Ah, sexism. I love that we we got like right on the moment of we're going to have to talk about sexism too. We got a solid what's up ho. I'm so sorry. My siblings came in. It happens. That's teenagers for you. Now that we've had a little chuckle, we'll all cry together for a moment. Yeah, let's cry. According to Rosie Perez, her face is not shown in her nude scene because she felt exploited and was crying. Oh, sad. And then I know that this was written by a dude because this second sentence follows immediately. She later decided she didn't mind and appeared nude again in other movies. (laughs) That's not exactly the interpretation I would have taken, but that's how the dude wrote it on IMDb. Because we all know you either do nudes or you don't do nudes. There's no play. other details. There's no other details going on whatsoever. No. <sighs> I have nothing to say. To I could that. understand that. Like, how weird does it be? Because these people are it's like... Her, f- her first feature film, you know? You have, to, yeah. you have to be in that situation like, well, this is an important scene. I got to do it for the art. And then it's like, well, why? Mm. Is this really important? You probably have talked yourself into it. And then you're there and you're like, wait a minute. No, this is just the director putting ice on my nipples, you know? <laughs> right. The fact that it's the director makes it clearly worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's worse. It could be done responsibly. But, you know, it, uh, it's... Uh, with a more with a more powerful actress with someone with more experience i mean it's not like people don't do nude scenes in films right yeah even spike lee doing what was his first feature film as well he's a director to have someone in their very first movie doing a nude scene and like you're the director and you're you know telling them to do this and that and the other and no that's of course she was crying i can't imagine they have a whole room like i know it's And then the whole room of people staring at you, I know. Yeah, I can't imagine being in her position like, oh my gosh. I know. But I feel like most people would be emotionally upset. Even if it's not your first feature film, you probably wouldn't outright cry, but you'd still be like, eh, do I really... The final conflict ends up being over this boombox over the music and of course fight the power of course pino is the one who calls the cops so they show up and then choke radio rahim to death with a baton mm-hmm. practically hanging him yeah yeah we have that shot with his sneakers hanging above the pavement and you're right it is clearly intentionally reminiscent of a lynching I often think about things in very material terms, whether that means literally in terms of Marxist analysis or whether that's in terms of the environment or whether that's in terms, in this case, of staging and set design. Think of how tall Radio Rahim is. That dude is huge. <laughs> uh, 
the actor's name, uh, Bill Nunn. Even that white cop who is pretty big, I don't think that there's any way that he could have choked Rahim and lifted him up high enough for those sneakers to dangle above the pavement the way that they do in that close-in shot of his feet. By pointing that out, I'm pointing out that Spike Lee chose to make this a symbolic image of hanging to remind us of lynchings to make us think of that because of course it's not concerned with like well how tall is this officer and how high would you have to lift this guy into the air i mean like certainly you can choke a man even if his feet are on the ground but the point is by showing that he gives us an image of a classic lynching we chose to watch this movie for an obvious reason abolish the police because those cops get there and they sure are good at doing exactly what we expect cops will do. We had seen, well, maybe not seen. I'm at the point in my life where I don't really want to see these videos. I'm not like surprised that cops are killing people for no good reason. I've never trusted cops anyway. I know the videos out there. I can hear people talking about it. I don't have to watch it myself to believe that yeah. that uh, several police officers lay on someone's back while one of them put his knee on his throat and yes murdered george floyd so then it doesn't necessarily surprise us to see the police officers come and they choke this man to death what do we think the audience's response might have been in 1989 i think there wouldn't have been as much of a response as if it were shown today i think it would have been more normalized it wouldn't have had as much of a reaction yeah especially among um white folks i think that we paint with too broad a brush if we put it that way just trying to make sense of it because the reactions have i feel have been progressive it wasn't like suddenly switch though there was a larger increase in people being quote unquote woke but the way that resistance to progressive politics seems to operate as i've seen it isn't so much a question of like do we accept that I think that, well, maybe it was in the true first wave progressivism of the turn of the century, when you literally had people mailing around postcards of lynching photographs. Yeah, okay, maybe it was like, do you like this? We do see anti-lynching campaigns, you know, in the teens and in the 20s. Yeah. Obviously with the NAACP, but um, with with white allies as well. It's It's a progressive thing. It's not like every white American is like racist to the bone. And there were major boycotts, even of Birth of a Nation in 1915, basically to the effect of saying like, no, you can't glorify lynching. We're not going to allow that. By the time you get to something that I want to increasingly put my finger on as a specifically fascistic style of discourse, it ends up being a question of do you believe this? We get to questions of like, That's good. ah, yes. I've heard that Germany is very mean to those Jewish people, but surely it can't be quite so bad as they say. Maybe there are some Jewish media people who are trying to trick us into thinking that it's worse than it actually is. Or we get into these strange contortions of, it looks like the man has his leg on this man's neck, but actually he had pre-existing conditions and so therefore he died faster than that police officer ever could have thought in a certain sense it was just accidental or we have this radical postmodern interpretation of the rodney king beating video where 
the defense attorney for the cops is literally going through shot by shot and trying to interpret every different twist of Rodney King's body as a way of saying, look, he's still resisting and they have to hit him another time. There is in our postmodern and 21st century world, a much more bizarre resort to belief as an argument against anti-racism. This is a long-winded way of saying when people saw Radio Rahim choked in Do the Right Thing in 1989, do you think they said to themselves, ah, that's Spike Lee. He's trying to make these cops out to be awful. They don't do shit like that. Or did they say to themselves, those fucking cops, they're always doing shit like that. Depends on the people who are watching it. Exactly. And the class that they come from. Yeah. I mean, is it as simple as white people versus black people, or is it more no, complex than that? No, it never is. I'm, I'm <laughs> seriously thinking back to, to Paths of Glory, or I'm thinking forward to Paths of Glory, the episode which will drop, like, months after <laughs> this one. Whatever, yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> like, I, like I said, if, if you have the French army not even taking stenography on this or that court-martial, then you literally have to produce a fictional document, a novel, or a movie to be like, this stands in for the things that are missing from the historical record that we know are missing, but that we are forced to imagine. If you have a community where you don't have camcorders, you don't have smartphones, and yet people are being brutalized day in, day out, what you have is a fictional movie set up to show, yeah, they do kill us. We can't prove it because like every time we go to court over it, like the cops are just going to be like, we're cops. We tell the truth. He was resisting arrest. But the Buffalo Police Department video of that older gentleman, bro, we have video footage. Shut the fuck up. I absolutely think that when this came out in 89, this is the kind of a scene where black people were not surprised by Radio Rahim being killed. And a lot of white people would have thought that it was in some way racist against them. (laughs) That it would would paint white police officers in this way. I can flip through the IMDb and see that some people reacted to this. And by some people, I of course mean some, you know, middle-aged white movie critics. The Walters and Chads and the Beckys and the Susans and the Karens of the worlds were like, (laughs) how dare you be so mean to us white folks? We gave you the fire hydrants and we even allowed the police to keep you safe. And then then just because you can imagine somebody choking one of your people, you are going to paint us with this brush. 30 years later, this is like, well, no shit. And that'll be our transition to Queen and Slim because Queen and Slim is really the like no shit movie. Yeah, the state's got a gun to your head and cops don't give a fuck. Like the moment you question them, they will draw. And so Queen of Slim is coming from a completely different place than Do the Right Thing. And when I see a movie like Queen of Slim, I can say that like there is progress there. And that in certain senses, it is obviously targeted to a black audience, but it's also highly legible to an educated white audience as well, or even to what I would call a working class white audience. And we've been so trained over the past few years to imagine a working class white audience as a racist audience that we forget that there are plenty of 
opportunities for alliance along those lines. Part of the escape of Queen and Slimbin to think a little bit about that. You could tell that it was very important and realistic, but as a privileged white person who lives in a rural area, I couldn't, thank God, connect to it. Just how educated Slim had to be, because uh, Queen assumed that he didn't know how to interact with police officers when he was pulled over, and he's like, I know, I know. But just how educated you have to be just to survive, not thrive. Yeah. And, and even if Queen, she was perfectly well-dressed, perfect manners, perfect grammar, the perfect Black American, just to be seen, not necessarily as equal, but not so different. And that's what Queen is trying to achieve. And then even then it fails. Yeah. It ultimately runs into the fucking brick wall of white supremacy, right? Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, the characters are complementary or perhaps even foils for each other in really interesting ways. To me, Queen and Slim represent different strategies of contemporary Black culture in their attempts to survive inside of a system that, that hates them. And Queen is bringing this very type A overachiever perspective to the table. I don't think that she's naive enough to believe in something like meritocracy, but certainly she thinks that her best bet in the world is to do everything twice as well as the white people and to fight the system from within. So yeah, she is concerned with things like respectability, at least initially. She is concerned with things like education in that sort of traditional book smart sense. And she does look down on Slim, especially early on in the movie, in ways that make her mm -hmm. look pretty bad, quite honestly. Yeah. Like when she says, now did you choose this place because you genuinely like this place or is it because it's the only place you can afford? Yeah, she's kind of shamelessly classist. Yeah. Slim's strategy is what I want to call an undercover strategy, the kind of strategy that's available to people with less formal education, with also less economic power. Less formal education, of course, isn't to say that he's not intelligent. He's quite intelligent and he's very aware of his world. He educates himself on everything from the scriptures to the places that he's going to eat. But his idea of what education is is quite different than Queen's. And his idea of then the way to operate within a system that's pitted against him is quite different than hers. She is ready to fight every step of the way, ready to say, you don't have a warrant. You have no reason to ask me that question. You have no reason to pull me aside. And his strategy is, I'm just going to live my life as the best person I can be, leave it up to God. And I suppose I have to submit to this insane authority that's pitted against me. Sure. Okay. Look through my trunk. I've got nothing to hide. Yeah. What's in the box? Shoes. Yeah. What's the best thing that I could ever have? Well, I want a woman to love me and hold my hand. Because she is my legacy. Yeah. Was that endearing to you, Anna? Or is that just in a certain way simple or what? I thought it was cheesy, but okay, it makes sense for how they're trying to build his character. I didn't necessarily appreciate the ride or die aspect. Like, people have their fucking faults. If they're a bad person, even if they loved you at one point, you should still leave them. He is an intense believer in uh, 
predestination-oriented version of Christianity. He thinks that everything's set, and he thinks that the best that he can do is forgive people. And the best that he can ask for other people is for them to forgive him. That's his approach to the world. And so it therefore makes sense that that's his one requirement in a woman is ride or die. Because if you're ride or die for me, then I can be ride or die for you. That's how marriage is defined in the popular scripture of Christianity. You're bound to this person until you die. That's the life he ends up living, honestly. I mean, they don't literally get married, but that's what they end up doing. Yeah. I mean, it's an intensely conservative vision. It's not perhaps conservative in the way that white folks think of conservative, but it is absolutely Protestant, predestination, hardline, roots Christianity. But I love the similarities between this and Selma and Louise. It's shocking, but it's unfortunately true for many folks when they make a mistake in self-defense or on accident and the steps they have to go through for that. Right. Like self-defense and shooting the people and then going on this whole trip to stay out of trouble and then eventually dying. I would love to eventually talk about Thelma and Louise's characters because they intrigued me. They're really good characters. They're really well laid out and they're laid out in a way that's not super obvious. The characterization in Queen and Slim is much more obvious than what we see in something like Thelma and Louise. Queen and Slim are throwing out flags to different specific communities, different specific class identities, and what ultimately boils down to different specific strategies for surviving under white supremacy. But what's going on in Thelma and Louise is a lot more nuanced and a lot more subtle. I think that there's a problem with the demands that the majority culture automatically ends up placing on a movie like Queen and Slim or like, in fact, Do the Right Thing. A sense of what I want to call tokenism, and I'm not even sure that I'm using the term correctly here, but but let's just roll with it. A sense of what I want to call tokenism ends up, whether anyone wants it to or not, forcing on the movie that you know is going to break through from African-American audiences to the mainstream U.S. public. It forces onto that movie a sense of now speak for your whole community. That's where I think Spike Lee has succeeded as an African-American director because of his willingness to take that up and be like, I can try and make this one block of Bed-Stuy on this one day in 1989 iconic and symbolic for all of the Black struggles in America. And it's similarly the kinds of things that in Queen and Slim, the director, Melina Matsukas, and the writers, uh, Lena Waithe, James Fry, etc. It's what they're ultimately going to do, whether they want to do it or not. I think it's unfair to force that on them. It's unfair to have them speak for yeah. a whole sector. In part because James Fry is white. But uh, that's how racism operates. Like, yeah, of course it's unfair, but yeah, you're swimming in it. And it's not until we get hundreds and thousands more movies by Black directors and Black writers and Black actors that we end up getting to a point where it's like, okay, everything can be a little snapshot, a little snippet here and there. 
I mean, there's a reason that we teach Invisible Man, and not only because like Invisible Man is certainly one of the greatest American novels of the 20th century, but it's also that Ralph Ellison, like right dead center in the middle of the 20th century, managed to encapsulate not just the story that he wanted to tell, but something that was sort of iconic and emblematic and represented the whole history of African-American struggle in the United States. Because, I mean, quite honestly, somebody's got to teach the white people. Somebody's got to tell the white people what's up. Unfortunately. I mean, that doesn't sound good, but it's that's, that's what it is. And you know, if those are the people who are publishing the novels in 1944, and those are the people who are writing the syllabi of what gets taught. So similarly, something like Queen and Slim, with the push in the last two weeks to then be like, here's a reading list, here's a movie, here's a book, sort of, sort of educate yourselves. At a certain point, there's then a backlash of like, hey, also make sure that you consume black produced media that's not just all about the history of how awful our historical struggles have been. A lot of these kinds of questions go back to the iconic modernist flowering of African-American philosophy and culture and art and literature in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. As African-American soldiers return from the First World War and they come back to communities that will not accept them because of the color of their skin. And in many cases, like we're now increasingly remembering, you know, in cases like Tulsa, uh, communities that literally attacked them and attempted to annihilate them. You had race riots like that all over the country and all over England. You had similar ones, attacks on soldiers of African descent, merely returning to their homes as victorious warriors. Yeah, and that's what really turned up the heat for the movement. And then in Harlem, you have this question of, okay, well, how are we going to build an African-American culture that can speak both politically and intellectually to the rest of the country in a way that they will recognize us? One of the great things, of course, about the Harlem Renaissance is you have examples of both speaking within the community and speaking outside the community. And you have questions of poets and writers within that community. Am I an American poet or am I an African-American poet? To what extent should my race play into the kind of work that I do and what audience am I speaking to? Those questions then filter out through all of African-American culture ever since, even down to Public Enemy being a Black nationalist hip-hop group. So with a movie like Queen and Slim, we see so obviously this attempt to encapsulate the problems, the struggles of Black Lives Matter into a movie. And does this work? Is this cheesy? I do think there's an element of cheesiness there. But again, it is their intent to be obvious so that they can get their point across. Does that mean that you think that this is actually mainly for a white audience? Yeah. I think that that's an interesting take and an important mm-hmm. one in terms of how we interpret it. I think it felt very watered down yeah. for people to understand. It didn't feel as intense as Thelma and Louise. I think it might be because I can relate more to the purpose of being on the run for Thelma and Louise as compared to 
queen and slim because there's no way I could ever relate to that. There are some aspects that I could relate to on a small level, but I couldn't relate to that. So I think that's why it's mostly for white audiences to understand to some small degree. I wonder why you keep saying that you couldn't ever relate to that. I understand you're trying very hard not to take blackness onto yourself. But then again, like we watch lots of movies about lots of things. Yeah. What do you mean by that exactly? Like not fully, but I can understand some aspects of it and relate to it like i just killed somebody what am i gonna fucking do let's run like i can relate to that but i can't relate to the part where i gotta run so i don't get killed by police officers for killing a cop you're pushing to my taste identity a little bit too hard here and i see where you're coming from in that you don't want to be appropriating blackness unto yourself but then again american culture has produced hundreds and thousands of movies that are about running from the cops and about the assumption that when they catch you they will kill you yeah identifying with queen and slim running from the law is not the same thing as identifying with african americans and claiming that you can know like how that feels but it is saying that i follow along with this movie and this plot line and i can think to myself oh maybe they should have jumped a train instead of taking a car oh well maybe they should have tried to go for mexico or maybe they should have gone to canada there are a million ways that you can run this in your head that just end up being how we think of movie plot lines and actually have very little to do with race and you're not then claiming that you understand how it feels to be black. You're just trying to express how it feels to live through that movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I can see how you can take that. Unfortunately, yes. It I think that you're saying like something that. that is important, but you're allowing that thing that you're saying that is important to sort I'm of separating inhibit myself your... From, I'm separating myself from it so that I don't have to live with it. Keep in mind um, that movies are about playing with your subjectivity. Movies are about allowing you to identify with people who you are not, just like books, right? Yeah. I'm so afraid of offending people that I'm not letting myself learn. What I was trying to say near the beginning of our conversation yeah. is like part of that getting past shutting up and getting past listening. Yeah, you want to shut up. Yeah, you want to listen. But once you're done listening, you want to be able to say something. And being able to say something is also being able to be like, eh, yeah, maybe I fucked up that time. You know, let yourself so, be wrong. Me, yeah, saying this stuff, wrong. me saying this stuff isn't me misunderstanding you. It's me trying to relate to it more. Yeah. Um, well, it's also why I assign this along with Thelma and Louise. It was the version of the story that was made for me, and therefore I was supposed to, from a producer's perspective, relate to it most. And I did in some ways. I did appreciate how their characters were more nuanced. I could pick out bits of myself that I could see in Thelma or Louise. It wasn't just cut and dry. This is what they are. This is what their motivations are. They kind of molded them to be rounder characters and i appreciated that i also appreciated that they made space for the discussion of sexual assault and i'm sure we'll get into that more later i think the most obvious difference between the two movies is that thelma and louise are best friends Whereas the dynamic between queen and slim is mainly interesting because they're almost strangers I would say if we want to 
categorize these characters. And I do agree with you, Anna, that they're a bit more fleshed out, a bit more rounded than what we get in a movie like Queen and Slim. Though I think that as we spend more time with any character, they round out, obviously. Thelma is what I want to call the, the pleaser, the person who has decided that being born into a sexist culture with a body as ridiculous as hers, the best thing that she can do is try and keep men happy and hopefully they won't hurt her. Does that sound reasonable? No, you're squinting, so I must have done it bad. I don't see it that way. Maybe that's like exaggerating. But the point is that where she makes mistakes, and that's with a pretty hard quotation mark there, where she makes mistakes, it's because she's being too nice. Whether that's that she dares to dance with this man at the bar, or whether that's that she dares to hook up with Brad Pitt's character, or whether that's that she accepts that she should live with the shitbag husband that she does. Don't get me started on him. (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? Like her fault is that she's too nice. Yeah, but it's also, it's also not always her mistake to make. It's also not. No, no, no. She lives in a sexist culture. It's always her mistake. It's always her fault. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not meaning to suggest that, like, I actually blame her. I'm just saying that, like, the world she's in is going to blame her. Mm -hmm. That's why I say exaggerated things like she dares to, you know, have sex with Brad Pitt. Of course, who wouldn't have sex with Brad Pitt? (laughs) I didn't even know that was him. He is so young. young. (laughs) No wonder I couldn't even. I just hearing that you just said that for the first time, it just blew my mind. I'm like, what? He is so young. Dares to have sex with Brad Pitt, dares to dance with the man at the bar. Yes, of course. In a reasonable society, you could dance with someone at the bar and it wouldn't be assumed that you were going to have sex with them. In a reasonable society, you would be able to also have sex with even a cool even a cool drifter on the highway and not assume that he would rob you. But we don't live in a reasonable world. We live in a world full of fucking thieves and rapists who happen to be men. Funny how that works out. So to call her the pleaser is not like me trying to blame her. Again, this is a strategy for dealing with oppression, just like we see with like Queen versus Slim, like how do they deal with the world that they live inside? Whereas Louise takes the take no shit strategy. Well, it was interesting when you mentioned earlier Queen and Slim strategies for dealing with the culture of racism. Then automatically that made me think in that moment, in this movie, it's just swapped out for sexism and the patriarchy, how they deal with that. The perspective that I was most interested in in this film is the progression of Thelma, actually. Obviously, because that's one of my areas of interest. I think a lot of people would jump to characterize Thelma as the weaker character because she stays in this relationship with Daryl. He's a winner, as we know. She does stereotypical things that we would think of that would be past expectations for women, such as asking, oh, can I do this? You know, can I do that? The man is the ruler of his kingdom, and she plays along with that. But by the end, she's the one shooting the cop. She's the one doing all these other things. So I did appreciate her progression. I appreciate even the little moments with Brad Pitt. Oh, she realizes, like, wow, I can make these decisions for myself. And she realizes that sex can be good. That's like, right, exactly. That's like a major I, earth-shattering I, I, thing for her. I laughed at that part, and then I was happy with her. 
thank God you figured out that you can be an individual and you don't have to be tied to someone else. It's also not right to go on this feminist tangent without having the critique of, are they trying too hard, like Wonder Woman, to make this into a film that plays for women? I wouldn't necessarily even call these feminist characters. I think that's worth considering. Do you see it advancing awareness of what sexual assault might look like and what might be a legitimate response to it in an era when men might not have been thinking about this sort of thing? Or does it just seem as like something bad happens and then you fight back? Like, is that substantive? No. It portrays sexual violence and then it portrays her reactions to it and also adverse reaction to it, you know, as we get with Louise where she doesn't want to talk about it. But it just goes way overboard. Like you said, almost cartoonish. And I get it, you have to do that for film, but it's at least to me and what I know, it's not advancing anyone's awareness of the issue. It's almost using it as a bit. Do you think it's aestheticized in a way that's problematic as well? Is that something you can never get away from, I guess, is another question. Yeah, you, know, you can never get away from it. I do appreciate, though, how gritty it is. I appreciate how they don't gloss over it. Kind of like do the right thing. They show it for what it is. I think there's some value in that, even if they use it as like a set piece. Louise doesn't even want to talk about Texas. And from what I know about it, I can't speak to it. But from what I've learned about it, that might be a common tactic. Right. You right. know, you, you push it down, especially learning about psychology, traumatic memories, and things like that, it gets buried and then it all comes flooding back. And even when it does come flooding back, you don't always want to accept it as reality. Even in movies and genres that are teaching us that actually know all cops are bastards, actually know they're just going to shoot us at any moment. We have here something that I want to call a very typically early 90s good cop, Harvey Keitel's character. We're pretty familiar in the crime genre with the idea of the cops as bad guys. I think it's less true in the 21st century than it was in the 20th century. And part of that is actually, in my mind, helping to explain not only the valorization of the uh, paramilitary police force that we see currently on the streets beating and killing people, but then also therefore the reaction against that in uh, the insurrection that's ongoing. So in the late 90s and then through the 21st century, we have this boom of police procedural shows, starting with Law and Order, and then with any number of other variants of it. We have a similar thing going on with cops or with now today live PD, like sort of reality documentary style shows. And those are shows that then switch the viewpoint back around to the police being the protagonists, the police being the good guys. But in 80s and 90s movies, it was totally normal to see movies in which cops were just soulless baddies who existed for the purpose of being slaughtered by the hero. The Matrix is the best example because it like sort of comes at the end of this progression. I'm tempted to say that the turning point is more or less 9-11. When we shift over into this troop-worshipping mentality that is very characteristic of a certain perspective on the military and the police and that intends to even conflate those. 
But we do have this thing in the early 90s where you have a top-level cop like Harvey Keitel's Hal in Thelma and Louise. And there's a similar role in the movie Set It Off. The police officer who's sort of the head detective and antagonist of the film is also portrayed in this weirdly respectful fashion like he's the only one who appreciates these women and and their intelligence and their ability i think it's odd in a certain sense it's just like good movie making make your antagonist complex and interesting in another sense it's kind of like laying up on the cop mentality when i do increasingly feel like 99 times out of 100 it's like the dudes in do the right thing where it's like oh you 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 brought us in to kill a man and we killed a man well, how could you possibly complain why are you mad <laughs> why, why are you mad is he a token character then against all the other <laughs> dumb white cops harvey Keitel gets to be the one good cop yeah i mean maybe I mean, we shouldn't really obsess on him, I suppose. I couldn't help but think about it because I wanted so badly to call this episode ACAB times three. <laughs> we also get some like really bad personality reading in there too, where the other cops trying to coach Christopher McDonald's character of Daryl for the phone call with Thelma. So it's like, oh yeah, you know, act like you're happy to talk to her. You know, no! like, nothing's wrong. And like the moment that he expresses enthusiasm that she's called him on the phone she hangs up because she knows the cops are there with him i love that part i was like <laughs> she, she knows her husband is a piece of crap like he would never yeah he would never do that and these cops somehow don't realize that he's a piece of shit How? even having met the man i love my wife we get along so well Gosh. And I'm like tempted to take Daryl as this extreme stereotypical character that in some way isn't fair. And then yet again, no, because I know men like that exist. And then the people that I've known that are like that, there's a lot more going on there. There's likely a lot more complexity there. Maybe even a character like Daryl that seems just like such a stereotypical shitbag. Actually, in reality, it'd be quite a bit worse. Like we see with Uncle Earl in Queen and Slim, right? That doesn't lay up. He quite literally is a traumatized paranoiac who beats the women that he's pimping out. And there, it's probably easy for us to say this is resorting to some kind of a stereotype of what a black man in New Orleans who would have enough money to shelter criminals would look like. But it's also allowing for a great deal of complexity in that character that we're supposed to actually care about him in some way, even though what he is is pretty hideous. I think that in some ways Daryl's character works within the movie world of Thelma and Louise because we have Michael Madsen's character of Jimmy as a foil. An image of still believably dirtbaggy, white trash masculinity, but with a heart of gold. If we represent two different sides of things as we do with these characters of Selma and Louise or with Queen and Slim, somewhere in between we get like, uh, yeah, of course, it's sort of caricature versions of reality, but stakes out the goalposts for the things that people do in this world. Of course, you can't catch everything. You kind of have to do that in order to have it make sense. That's something we see a lot more in movies than in books. In novels, there's a great deal of demand to always fully round out the character, to always make the character an individual. Whereas in movies, we're a little bit more comfortable in dealing with types. 
even if that then might even resort to stereotype and to say that, well, that is also still believable. And part of it's because we see less of any particular character in any particular movie than we would in a novel. One thing I really liked about the characters of Thelma and Louise is that certainly as we move through the movie, we get more and more of them, more and more is revealed to us, but they're never over-explained. There's always a sense that they have pasts and they have inner worlds that as viewers of the movie, we don't necessarily get to see, nor do we need to see. I don't know if that describes your experience. It may be that as a woman, you felt like you could fill in those blanks a little better than I could. I guess in some ways, but in other ways, no. Can we accept this wholeheartedly as a feminist film? No. No, same as Wonder Woman. No, we can't. And from the director's perspective, they want them to be things that women can identify with. But then again, are they actually achieving that? Especially because it's directed by Ridley Scott. You sort of are forced to ask yourself, what's his motive here? What's he trying Mm -hmm. to do with this? It could happen with a woman, too. We have so many directions we can take this. Like, do we think of this in terms of auteur theory, where you basically presume that the director is the king of the movie and therefore it's a Ridley Scott film? Do we think of this in terms of the performances that the actresses deliver that then make the film what it ultimately is? Do we think of this in terms of viewer response, where Actually, the most important thing about Thelma and Louise is what women specifically and then American culture as a whole took away from it and how it ended up being such an iconic representation of how a sexist and misogynistic culture was against women. And each of those leads us to different conclusions. And in a certain sense, each is important, but they are quite different ways of understanding what a movie even is. I knew The Legend of Thelma and Louise existed, just the premise of it, long before I ever saw this film. And what does that say? Does that say that how our culture has reacted to it is the most important part? Yeah, maybe. Ridley Scott, his breakout movie was Alien, and that was in 1979 with Sigourney Weaver as the lead role. And Alien was considered a very big deal because it's described as the first working class science fiction movie. It's considered working class because the characters are sort of the equivalent of spaceship truckers. They're like moving materials between star systems. And then, of course, then Alien gets on the ship and fucking kills everybody because that's what happens in these types of movies, right? Except for the main character, Ripley. And now you can see how this script that he wrote, he like changed one letter of his own name to make the character's name, which gives you a sense of how like fucking brilliant writer-directors are. Originally, the character had been written for a man, but there wasn't anything about the role that made it necessarily masculine or feminine in any particular way. And he ended up casting Sigourney Weaver in this role. And so then, therefore, it ends up kind of de facto being a feminist movie. And With like very, very hard quotation marks around it. You'd love this one. You'd absolutely love this one. There's nothing about the fact that 
Ripley is a woman that really matters at all. She could just be any person throughout this whole movie. Though in the very last scene, there is a moment where she has to, I can't remember all the details of it, but she has to like slip out of her space suit and then into another one or something. She has to do something. At some point, she's in her underwear. That is the most important part of this scene, of course. Blade Runner is probably his best movie and another science fiction classic with some far cringier scenes. Thelma and Louise is, of course, the the movie that makes him a feminist icon. But then in the 90s, he starts to make all of these imperialist bootlicker movies. The heck? Well, and the first one is like literally a movie called 1492, which I remember very vaguely my mom watching because she was really into boring historical movies. And being that she was a history teacher, it's a movie about Columbus made in 1992. He made G.I. Jane, which is a movie about a woman in the military. He made Gladiator. And then after 9-11, he rushed out Black Hawk Down, which is about uh, the Battle of Mogadishu and ended up being a major recruiting tool for the war on terror. It's really hard to pin down in Ridley Scott's career whether we should take him as some sort of liberal or as the worst fascist that we could imagine. But that's just to say that, you know, people are complicated and every movie is unique. But Thelma and Louise has definitely become a sort of feminist icon of a movie. I've seen this movie riffed on so much. Even just like the idea of two people hold hands and then drive off a cliff. It's been used in so many damn things every single time. It's some weird, so many steps removed parody of this movie. To my mind, and what makes this obviously a movie that was directed by a man and clearly not by a uh, woman nor by a survivor of sexual assault, though the writer was a woman, Callie Corey. I see Ridley Scott, male director, in his presentation of the scene of sexual assault as something that we fear will happen, as something that might happen, and as something that has been stopped from happening. Which is to say that there is no sense in the way that it's shot that he's taking into account really of the trauma of almost having been sexually assaulted. Put another way, I, as like Ridley Scott, a man, watching it was relieved by the fact that indeed Thelma, Gina Davis's character, was not raped, ultimately. And that was an excuse in my head to be like, yeah, as gritty as that was, as scary as that was for a moment, now it's over and it wasn't a big deal. You see what I'm saying? Right? No, it was a big deal. Of course it was a big deal. That's my point. In fact, a big enough deal that a lot of people might have seen that and very much have been, you know, triggered by it. And yet that for a filmmaker, and let's also point out for the movie rating system, it is defined as not a big deal. For the legal system, it's defined as not a big deal. For the way that the director sets it up, it is by definition not a big deal. And in fact, less of a big deal than the fact that Susan Sarandon then shoots this guy and kills him. So yeah, it is a very gritty scene. It is a very dark scene. It is a violent scene but even in using a word like violent there we get very quickly into the way that we define violence as a culture because i think that strictly speaking while this is an r-rated movie right it is a scene that some people would watch that and be like well that is not very violent compared to like whatever worse things i'm imagining right but you see you see why i'm saying this i'm not saying this because i'm trying to make this case i'm saying this because i'm trying to 
point out how the subjectivity of the person who's shooting the film and potentially the person who's watching the film, that is like kind of the problem. But then again, the solution to that problem actually isn't necessarily any better. I mean, in some ways, it's just like you kind of have to lean into it and make it worse if you want to shock these very well might have been conversations between director and producer, the, you, the kind of conversation that you have when you're in the production for a film. The person above Ridley Scott with the money might very well have been like, no, 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 that's too extreme. Like, we're not, we're not going to have a movie that's like a rape revenge plot. And Ridley Scott's like, okay, what if we make it like an almost rape revenge plot? Like she, she doesn't actually get raped. And then like literally you have two dudes in a room dickering over, okay, panties on or panties off? Panties oh on. Oh my God. Like they had that fucking conversation. I can't guarantee I it, but there's a very good chance they had that conversation. It's just bad any way you slice it. Of course it is. But when we think about it in terms of its production, then it's like not only bad as a film, it's like the system that makes this thing is just as bad as the thing it's trying to represent. And we've talked about that. What's a responsible representation? What's an exploitative representation? In Do the Right Thing, we had a good example of a scene that was ostensibly a very sex positive scene, but actually in terms of its material conditions was not and was more or less a type of assault itself we have to think of the ethics on the screen the ethics off the screen the ethics in terms of a good example of a scene where like well that's not even really necessary to the plot so it's easier for us to be like uh, whether you knew it or not maybe dude you just wanted to get your hands on rosie perez and that's why you wrote this scene it's not even a question even though that he did i'm like, being too nice to him yeah yeah fair enough in other situations you might say like well this or that scene that that might be problematic in any number of ways like is necessary to the plot or is important to making the point that it's making in a movie like thelma and louise you have a rape scene um or what as i've almost rape <laughs> dragged us through interminably an almost rape scene that in and of itself is kind of the argument for if you're going to do the rape scene maybe you ought to do the rape scene and like Right. Like people suffer through it. There's a good argument, and this is what a lot of the Italian directors were doing in the era in which they were getting into so much trouble, was they were trying to make the audience suffer through, like, bad violence. That also, of course, has its downside, which is that, like, well, the, the objective shouldn't be to literally traumatize or re-traumatize the audience, Right. Maybe that is, for some of them, what they were actually trying to do. It's okay to traumatize your audience, but it's preferable if you have a point denuncio is just like hey i'm gonna go on for pages stop reading if you want to i absolutely believe that denuncio and after him marinetti were 100 percent getting off on the idea that they were traumatizing <laughs> people that was not like an accident on the way to some political statement I think that with like Bertolucci and like Last Tango in Paris or or even Novacento, you have more of a case to make that this horny dumbass thought that he was making art. <laughs> and and actually like he was doing something that was kind of really awful. You've got a better argument in Novacento to be like, this is a much bigger picture thing. Uh, maybe we right. didn't have to have all the penises in there, but whatever. The penises stand They're out boys. in my mind. It's fine. They're boys, it's worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always going to have a soft spot in my heart for the novel. If you fuck something up in the novel, it's on you. There's no question about who did that thing. If 
people are suffering in the novel, they are entirely imaginary people. And if it's cringy, that's on you. And if it's awful and traumatizing for people, I mean, you were joking about D'Annunzio, but you know, in a novel, it's, it's way easier to just be like, no, I'm, I'm putting this down than it is in a movie where it just kind of keeps going whether you want it to or not until you hit the stop button. This is then getting into similar territory to when we were talking about the video of George Floyd's death. I have been watching the video of what is going on in the streets with the protesters and what the cops are doing because mm-hmm. I feel like it's really important for me to have a grounding in like the material conditions in the mass sense. Sure. But if it's a movie of somebody getting killed, well, I know the point of this is somebody got killed. Like, I don't need to prove that to myself. I won't watch it, you know, and I won't share it. To me, it was just a question of, okay, do I want to see a guy die? You know, exactly. I know, yeah. I know that it. Ha- I know that it happened, and I know, and we've been conditioned enough. We know where it's going to go from here. Even you can almost predict in your mind. Well, there's going to be some sort of response. What's so sad to me, and it's maybe I'm maybe I'm bit more bitter than I should be because I really I really do hope for change but there's a part of me that is like well then the cycle is going to repeat itself it's just hard not to feel helpless at some points like what can we do about it what we do is we critique right this is this is our job yeah <laughs> we see what we see and we try and pick out meaning from it and we try to understand it and we and we call it out if we say they're like, no, that doesn't make any sense, you know. We critique for the three people that will listen to us. ourselves, too. Ideally, through consuming art, through reading books, through watching movies, we can become better people. I can't guarantee it, but perhaps. We'll turn to dust. I know because I'll be thinking of you. In this great city, there's a silence in you. Happy 4th of July. If you're feeling healthy and the cops are threatening your town, get out in the streets and do what you gotta do. If you can't, donate to a bail fund. You've been listening to The Pointless Century. I'm Frank Fucile, and as always, I was joined by Rachel Homily and Anna Wendorf. Follow us on Twitter at PointlessScent or on Instagram at The Pointless Century. You'll be hearing from us again two weeks from now with our episode on Amiri Baraka versus T.S. Eliot. And two weeks from then with our consideration of Marinetti and Bertolucci. Long as you hear me